I always love to hear him tell a story. My stepfather was a storyteller. I grew up on his stories. He would get home from work, sit in his recliner, and begin telling stories. They were stories about what happened that day at work. He was the sheriff of our county. Each day it was something different. Uh, he's calling right now. Just tell him I'll talk to him later. Uh, each day it was, it was something different. Uh, broke up a cockfighting ring and chased the organizers through the woods. Uh, a hostage situation in a trailer park. And he's distracting the gunman while one of his officers climbs under the trailer. They are whispering to the hostage, the girlfriend, through a vent. Or, or, or breaking up a gang fight, and then both gangs turn on him. Now he's outnumbered. <laughs> he, could, he could weave a story. I was always sitting on the edge of my seat anticipating the ending. Some were happy endings. I found the last rooster fight organizer in a drain ditch. Or I arrested so many gang members, we ran out of handcuffs. I was tying their hands with ropes. Some were happy endings. Some were sad endings. We heard a gunshot. We all started running toward the trailer. Just before I busted through the door, there was another shot. He killed her and then killed himself. What I remember most about those stories was the effect that it had on my mother. I would hear her gasp and say, oh no, why did he do that? Or in other stories, oh, what happened next? See, he could weave a story. He didn't just captivate me with these stories at age 16. He did it at age 6 as well. Although those stories were of a different nature. Not so heavy. Like when he told me that there was an accident at his job. This was when he was farming before he won the sheriff's election. He said Jim dropped some farm equipment on his foot and was screaming in pain. My stepdad took the shoe off and it was a bloody mess. He realized Jim's big toe was gone. He turned the shoe upside down and the big toe fell out. The ambulance arrived and put Jim on a stretcher. He was screaming. They wrapped his big toe and put it on ice. They said if they get to the hospital quick enough, they can sew it back on. My stepfather followed the ambulance to the hospital. On the way, the back door of the ambulance swung open. They quickly shut it but didn't notice that the cooler fell out. It was the cooler with the toe in it. Now, I am going nuts at this point in the story. I am yelling, what did you do? What did you do? He calmly responded, I did the only thing I could do. I called the tow truck. <laughs> that was usually the moment when my mother started throwing couch pillows at him and frustrated, why do you do that? <laughs> I thought you were serious. My stepdad told some stories to make me laugh. He told some stories to scare me. I have this vivid memory in Maggie Valley, North Carolina, of my stepfather in the driver's seat, my mother in the passenger seat, and me and Dwayne, my good buddy, in the back seat. We were like six. My stepdad stopped over the edge of the valley. It was nighttime. Everything was pitch black. He turned the, the lights off, and he said, look. 
See the light in the valley? It was the spotlight in the valley moving around. And he began to weave a story about a man who escaped from prison but lost his leg in the process. And every night he comes out in search of that leg in the valley. I was terrified. I looked over and Dwayne, who was only six years old, but he was, he was a big boy. He was shaking and crying. He was about to have a panic attack. My stepfather didn't realize what the story was doing to him. And he finally looked in the back seat and he said, I'm joking, I'm joking, it's not true. Your mother's going to kill me. <laughs> My mom and I were just texting about that night last Friday. We are approaching in our text a 3,000-year-old story. And it's a good one. It will make us laugh, maybe even scare us, have us gasping, saying, oh, no, have us asking, what happened next? This story has a teller. It's God Almighty sitting on his royal throne, storying to us. He knows how to weave a story. Here's how I want to go at this story. I want to answer three questions. First, how could we really go wrong with this story? Secondly, who is going to bring us into and all throughout this story? Thirdly, how can we place this story into the bigger picture? First, how could we really go wrong with this story? Uh, my, my purpose in answering this question is not just to interpret the Bible for you. I am showing you, teaching you, modeling before you how to interpret the Bible. You treat the Bible like this. I'm not just going to give you a fish today. I'm going to teach you how to fish. First, how could we really go wrong with this story? Secondly, who is going to bring us into and all throughout this story? That's when we're actually going to walk through these two chapters verse by verse. And thirdly, how can we place this story into the bigger picture? I want us to zoom out there. Uh, one of my favorite books was written by John R. Stott. It's entitled, Between Two Worlds. In it, Stott contests that preaching is simply bridge building. Uh, the story, the text, is in the ancient world, and the audience is in the modern world. And the, and the preacher's job must, is simply to build a bridge between the two worlds. How does this ancient text speak into our modern context? While you're living in the contemporary world, you're hearing the Bible from the historical biblical world. And there is a gulf between the two worlds. Centuries between the story and the story listener. A lot has changed over that time. In the one hand, I hold the historical story. And in the other, the heart of modern man. Neither needs to be tampered with or ignored. I stand behind this pulpit with one foot in Israel and one foot in Oak Grove. And I'm about to build a bridge between those two worlds. Let's answer the first question. How could we really go, go, how could we really go wrong with this story? Well, we could moralize it. We could doctrinalize it. I made that word up. We could marginalize it. First, we could moralize it. I saw where one pastor did this. In our story today, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Saul and he gets angry. And this preacher titled his sermon, Let's Get Angry. 
That's moralizing the text. Picking up a moral principle from the text and then dropping it in the pew. Saul isn't in the scriptures, I don't think, so that we can copy him. Sadly, many preachers do this with the Old Testament. Joseph had a dream. You need to have a dream. Don't reduce the rich, colorful variety in the Bible stories to moral principles. You run the danger of undermining the overall message of the Bible. Did God tell you this story so that you could mimic the characters? No. You must not approach the story asking, what character should I mimic? You approach asking, what does this story reveal about God? Besides, mimicking this story could get you into a lot of trouble. Saul chops up his farm animal in this story and then sends bloody pieces throughout Israel. Are you going to chop up your little farm dog, your German shepherd, and, and send it to your neighbors in a UBS package? No. Moralizing Old Testament stories, that's what most non-expositional churches do. That's the first danger, moralizing. But there is another danger, and I, and I don't want you to put them on the same level because they're not. The other is not as bad. It's not sinful. It's just not the best. And that's doctrinalizing it. I run the risk of doing this. This is a natural bent that I have. Uh, some of the pastors that I admire and read after, they're often guilty of this. They flatten out the story into doctrinal sermon points. Pastors of our stripe can be so passionate about doctrine that they can ignore the story itself. They can turn the story into a few doctrinal headings. Wright illustrated this so well by writing, A preacher may say, well, we all know the story of David and Goliath, so let's not waste time going through it. Here are three doctrines we must learn from it. First, God's sovereignty. God had chosen David. He was God's elect future king. And then they might come up with a, with a lengthy talk on election. Secondly, God's power. David trusted in the power of God, which was greater than the size and strength of Goliath. Then the preacher might come with a lengthy talk on God's omnipotence. Thirdly, God's salvation. God saved David and the Israelites from the Philistines, but we know that God's salvation is only through Christ. Then the, then the preacher might come with a lengthy talk on the doctrine of salvation. Now, do not misunderstand me. All of these are true and important doctrines. This is certainly better than moralizing the story. But something has gotten lost, hasn't it? The story. Where is the plot development, the intrigue, the suspense, the surprise, the characters, the dialogue, the drama? Here's a thought. God could have given us his word, revealed his character, and a book full of doctrine, all nicely arranged by topics. But he didn't do that. There are some doctrinal books like Romans and Ephesians, but by and large, his book consists of stories. Why? Have you ever wondered how the people of the Old Testament believed what they believed? Let's take Psalm 89, for example. You don't have to turn there, but, but just listen. Psalm 89 says this. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, with your faithfulness all around you, 
righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Now, imagine you go up to the author of this psalm and you say, excuse me, sir, how do you know all this? How do you know that God is mighty, that he is faithful, that he acts by righteousness and does justice? Those are great doctrines, by the way. The author would simply say, how much time do you have? Sit down here and let me tell you a story. In fact, a whole bunch of stories. He may unpack the story of Abraham to illustrate God's faithfulness. He may unpack the story of the Egyptians to illustrate God's might. Israel learned their doctrine from their stories. That's why in Deuteronomy 6, it's so important to keep telling these stories again and again from generation to generation. God chose to reveal himself through stories. What do we learn about God's character from today's story? There are doctrinal bones, but they are clothed in story flesh. Now, a third way is, is marginalize it. And again, this, this is not as bad as moralizing it. But we could marginalize the Old Testament stories. What is that? That is only using Old Testament stories as nothing more than many pictures that illustrate New Testament spiritual truth. And once you understand the spiritual truth, you don't really need the Old Testament anymore. I feel like John MacArthur often uses the Old Testament this way. The Old Testament is only there to illustrate the New Testament. We all have leanings, and this seems to be his leaning. I'm not being critical of him. I'm illustrating this. Theologically and methodologically, we are, we are very similar. But guys that don't preach through any Old Testament books say, well, I'll just illustrate the New Testament with the Old. Well, that is not the intent of the Old Testament stories. How could we really go wrong with this story? These three ways. Number two, who is going to bring us into and all throughout this story? Well, humanly speaking, I am. Divinely speaking, God is. There are two main characters in this story. Saul and Samuel. Saul, the new king of Israel, the first king of Israel. Samuel, the old priest and judge of Israel. In chapter 11, we have Saul's rise. In chapter 12, we have Samuel's retirement. In chapter 11, we have a shooting star. In chapter 12, we have a falling star. We will look at the shooting star first and see Saul's rise to fame. Actually, verse 1 doesn't begin with Saul, the shooting star. Rather, it begins with Nahash, the slithering snake. Verse 1. Then Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us. And we will serve you. Nahash. Nahash was a vicious warlord. His name means snake. He was an arrogant, cruel, intimidating, Stalinesque figure. I say Stalinesque because Stalin once said, My greatest pleasure is to choose the victim, to prepare the blow with care, to slake an implacable vengeance. And then to go to bed. There is nothing sweeter in the world. Those words could have just as well been spoken by Nahash. But those words were certainly lived by Nahash. That snake. He ruled the Ammonite kingdom which was east of God's people. 
he and his army came to Jabesh Gilead and besieged it. They surrounded it with their chariots and horsemen and foot soldiers. They set the city in a panic. Men were sitting hopeless at the gate of the city. Women were, were crying knowing that they're about to be raped and beaten. Children were weeping knowing that they will go into slavery and never see their parents again. This is a weeping city all brought on by the snake. The elders who functioned in their normal responsibility as representatives of the people send a messenger out the city gate. The rules of war allowed some form of communication through errand boys. The people of the city request fair treatment in exchange for servitude. Verse 2. But Nahash, the Ammonite, said to them, On this occasion, on this condition, I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and then bring disgrace on all Israel. There are some extra-biblical sources. Extra-biblical meaning non-inspired but reliable. These sources say that Nahash the snake had already done this to other cities in Gad and Reuben. One source said that there was no Israelite east of the Jordan that still had his right eye. This is a ghastly mutilation. No pain medicine, no IV, no heart monitoring, no anesthesia. They came with a sharp knife, stabbed it into the eye socket, and carved out the eye. No patch, no bandage, hopefully your blood clots on its own. It was incredibly inhumane. Now, why would they do this to the right eye? Well, in war, a man held his shield over his left eye and he fought with his right eye. The right eye was crucial because you could not advance without it. The snake basically made all these men useless for battle. He incapacitated them, neutralized them, humiliated them. This would make them loyal slaves that were in check and they could never consider a mutiny. He created a bunch of disabled veterans. They could still do agriculture with one eye, but not war. They could still in, increase his wealth, but never threaten him. The errand boy runs, runs back into the city gates and he tells the elders of the city the ultimatum. The snake said he will accept a peaceful surrender if he cuts out our right eyes. Verse 3. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. This is something that the snake agreed to. But why would he agree to this? Well, that's a good question. Perhaps rather than engaging in a long and costly siege, he thought this would be better. Victory without an arrow being sent. This was probably a practical decision. However, it was probably an arrogant one as well. He knows he has complete military superiority. Yeah, go ahead, take a week, fine. We are not threatened. The snake coils and waits in a strike position. Israel knew the conditions of surrender and they sent out errand boys all over Israel. Someone come and rescue us. If not, we will be slaves in seven days. One errand boy showed up in Saul's hometown. 
He didn't show up because it was Saul's hometown. They went from town to town. Saul just happens to overhear it secondhand. Remember, Saul had gone home after the long live the king episode. Remember that two weeks ago. And he went back to farming. Saul is, is oblivious to the brutal threats against his people. The text says, Saul coming from the field. Small note, but significant. He isn't acting like Israel's king. Saul asked, what happened? Why is everyone crying? Now you might wonder, why would this city of Gibeah be so broken that Jabesh Gilead is being sieged? It's not like it's their city that's being threatened. Well, that's true. But there's this weird little story tucked away in God's book that reveals that there were 400 women from Jabesh Gilead that were brought to Gibeah for some repopulation thing. So there would have been tons of family connections with this city. Gibeah was full of former Jabesh Gilead people. That was their hometown. Their uncles and aunts, nieces and nephews and grandparents were there. And Saul, when he heard the terms of surrender, verse 6, the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words and his anger was greatly kindled. The Spirit of God came upon Saul to energize him for the conflict ahead. Just as the Spirit came upon Othniel, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson before. Verse 7, Saul took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. It wasn't long ago when Saul went out on a dangerous journey looking for lost oxen. Remember that? They were extremely valuable. Now he simply butchers these valuable oxes and, and, and sends portions to the tribes of Israel through little errand boys. There are moments in life when financial losses mean nothing. And it's all about the advance of the kingdom of God. Now this may sound cruel to you, especially you bleeding hearts. Well, why do those cows have to die? Why is that? When you face a vicious tyrant, you don't want a Chamberlain. You want a Churchill. Anyone who failed to respond to Saul's call to arms would have their livelihood taken away by this young king. Remember, this is an agricultural society. I'll burn all your fields, all your case, international harvester combines. I will chop you in pieces like I chopped this ox in pieces if you don't come and help us. Solomon travels 40 miles from Gibeah in the south to Bezek in the north. There he musters his troops. 330,000 men came out to rescue the city of Jabesh Gilead. Saul sends communication to the elders of the city and said, We are coming to your aid. We are coming to rescue you. Saul says, I am coming to crush the head of the snake. Here's his war plan. They will mislead the Ammonites by telling them, Tomorrow we will surrender. 
then you can come and chisel out our eyes. They deceive the enemy, intending to lull the Ammonites into a false sense of security. It doesn't seem like this was sinful. It seems like it was accepted in a holy war. The day arrived. It's go time. Ride or die, as the old philosopher Tupac used to say. Saul split the 330,000 into three companies of 110,000. Saul, the hick farm boy, is uniting Israel and displaying impressive military strategy. He's never led an army, but walks into it with the perfect battle plan. What a difference the Spirit makes. He implements a forced overnight march. 16 miles down the hills of Bezek, through the Jordan River, and back up the bank. They attack in the morning watch, which started at 2 a.m. It was a complete success. They dropped the Ammonites from 2 a.m. until the heat of the day. Saul led the people like a valiant king. He defeated Nahash, the snake. Verse 12, then the people said to Samuel, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. This is referring to Saul's previous coronation. There were some worthless fellows who didn't believe he could lead, which I can understand. They saw him hiding among the baggage. Verse 13, but Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Saul leads God's people to attribute praise to the right person. When God's people want to praise Saul, he leads them to praise the Lord. That's a leader. The narrator is emphasizing that the victory came by the Spirit's power. Salvation came not because Israel had a king, but because the king had Yahweh's spirit. This is the Old Testament way of saying, without me, you can do nothing. Verse 14, then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. See Gilgal and Ephraim on the left. Samuel, who really hasn't been involved at all in chapter 11, pops up in the story. The narrator is about to make a transition, so he introduces Samuel to make it go smoothly. In chapter 11, we have Saul's rise. In chapter 12, we have Samuel's retirement. In chapter 11, we have a shooting star. In chapter 12, we have a falling star. Samuel called for a covenant renewal ceremony in Gilgal. They again made Saul king over all Israel. This time, even the stragglers, the worthless fellows, were on board. They are making their sacrifices, they are celebrating, they are singing, they are reveling in God's victory. What is this? That's a right eye. I still have it. Then in the midst of that, chapter 12, verse 11. Chapter 12, verse 1. Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me, and I have made a king over you. This is going to be Samuel's farewell address. He will act as a consultant for the king of Israel, but no longer a judge in Israel. He's transferring civil authority to Saul. Though Samuel will live for another 30 years, he will no longer be a military leader. 
He will no longer be called judge. From here on out, he's just a spiritual advisor. He utters his longest sermon here. This is one of the, the great parting speeches in the Bible. His final act as judge was to put himself on trial. For the next five verses, he lays out the details of his lengthy career. Let's read a portion. Verse 2. And now behold, the king walks before you. And I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. You're seeing him at age three now, dedicated in the Shiloh temple. Your mind is going back. Verse 3, here I am, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. That's the king, Saul. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. He even gives them specific areas to critique. Areas where many leaders fail. Was I consistent over my 40 years ruling? Did I ever steal? Did I ever take advantage of anyone's kindness? Did I ever defraud anyone? Did I ever oppress or bully or intimidate? Did I accept bribes? Did I pervert justice? They said, you, you are a man of integrity. You have not done any of those things. You have not used the ministry for personal benefit. It must be a wonderful thing to stand before your people at the end of your life. And they say, well done. Samuel did his job. Not perfect, not sinless, but faithful. Samuel has fulfilled the most fundamental requirement of a judge. Impartiality. Verse 5. And Samuel said to them, the Lord is witness against you. And his anointed is witness this day, that's Saul, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. John Woodhouse comments, the vindication of Samuel meant the indictment of the people. Since they acknowledged that they had no real cause other than unbelief for their demand of a king. In verses 1 through 5, Samuel puts himself on trial. In verses 6 through 12, he puts all of them on trial. All of Israel. Verse 6, And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Samuel begins leading them through their national history, their spiritual history. It's often been said that one th the one thing we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. And that was certainly true of Israel. Samuel unpacks a string of deliverances going all the way back to Exodus. He rehearses God's righteous acts. He's bringing these events back to the minds of these people. He's saying, do you have amnesia? God's faithfulness led to your forgetfulness? Samuel wants them to rehearse the stories. Verse 7. Now therefore stand. Samuel uses courtroom language. Court is in session. They are standing before the bar of God's justice now. 
He continues, that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. Verses 8 through 11, Samuel walks through sinful rejection after sinful rejection in their long history. Chasing idol after idol. Each time a nation enslaved them because of their sin, God delivered them through some judge. Miraculous delivery after miraculous delivery after miraculous delivery. Samuel is building his case. He lists six deliverers and five enemy nations. Like a good lawyer, he's litigating, prosecuting the case against the Israelites. Look at verse 12. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king. See, this was the context for Israel asking for a king in the first place. The threat of the Ammonites. The threat they'd lose their right eye. God gave Israel a king like they wanted. This king did form a standing army and he did defeat the Ammonites. But just because they escaped the judgment from the Ammonites doesn't mean they will escape the judgment of God. Let's take a survey. How many of you have ever argued with people before? Would you raise your hand? Okay. All the husbands raised their hand. It's interesting. Have you ever pressed an argument with someone and your case oozes with reason and logic and common sense? Your argument has no loopholes or escapes. But then you suddenly realize your airtight argument fails to convince. It doesn't penetrate the defenses. Samuel knew the verbal truth without a visual aid would just leave Israel cold. So he, he gives them a visual aid. Verse 17. Is it not wheat harvest today? All the farmers here said, yeah, it is. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Samuel is, is praying up a storm. See, see what I did? This is wheat harvest. May or June, dead of summer, very dry, for it to rain in these months would be like snow falling on Miami in July. This is a disruption in the God-ordained weather pattern. As the thunder crashed around them, they were reminded that God's wrath would crash upon the guilty. As the lightning struck their crops, they were reminded that God's indignation would strike unrepentant sinners. As the rain poured down, they were reminded that God's fury would be poured out on those who reject him. By the way, this is not the first time God sent thunder and rain and judgment. It needs to be dry to harvest wheat. The storm destroyed the crops. God showed his mercy in a field of battle, chapter 11. Now he shows his judgment in a field of wheat. Chapter 12. 
He rescued them in chapter 11, and he gives them a hint of judgment in chapter 12. Israel recognizes once again, our God is not to be trifled with. Samuel is demonstrating to God's people, your sin has consequences. This story exposes a problem older than the book of 1 Samuel. It's a sin problem. This problem is not unique to Israel. It is shared by all humanity. It's woven into our DNA. We are stiff-necked, rebellious, and unthankful people. This text is not telling us to imitate Saul. But it is telling us that we have the same heart problem as these Israelites. We don't want God to be our king. At the center of every sin is a rejection of God's rule. Every sin you commit is an attempt to dethrone God. Every sin you commit is a statement to God. I'd rather have Saul as king. Non-Christian. Non-Christian, chapter 12, verse 25 is your end. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away. God will rain down his judgment on you for your sin. Now we will get to answering the third and final question in a moment, but, but there is one discovery about our God and his character that we must not ignore from this story. And it is this. If you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive your sins. Verse 19, And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. This storm scared them. For we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. On top of all of our other sins, we've piled on one more, asking for a king. They are contrite here. They are confessing sins. This is glorious. So often we want to talk people down. When they do this, we want to talk them down. Well, now, you, don't be so hard on yourself. We all make mistakes. Samuel doesn't do any of that. He says, you are right. What you have done is sin. And it was an attempt to dethrone God. Those of you that are non-Christians, you need to hear this. Those of you that are Christians need to hear this. God doesn't forgive sins based on your work. He forgives sins based on his character. Verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people. Why? For his great name's sake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Even after they had sinned significantly, God said, I will forgive. He promised he would not forsake his people. What you did was foolish. What you did was treason. What you did was wicked. But I will forgive you. Because I made you a people for myself. God is more committed to you than you are to you. Verse 20, Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. The storm messed them up. Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done 
all this evil. That's interesting. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. This verse means confess and move on. Don't go digging in the trash cans and pull out some wicked thing you did in the past. God says you confessed it, now move on. You don't have to be defined by the dumb decisions you made when you were young and immature. You don't have to be defined by the dumb decisions you made when you were old and mature. We repent and move forward in grace that is greater than our sin. Three questions. How could we really go wrong with this story? Well, we could moralize it, we could doctrinalize it, we could marginalize it. Who is going to bring us into and all throughout this story? Or humanly speaking, I did that. Divinely speaking, the Lord did that. Third question, how can we place this story into the bigger picture? In order to do that, let's differentiate between stories, narratives, and the meta-narrative. So we're going to zoom out now. What are stories? These are smaller individual units. Stories. Each includes some event that took place over a short period of time. Narratives. What are narratives? These are larger narrative blocks made up of many smaller stories covering a longer period of time. The meta-narrative. This is God's grand overarching story. The meta-narrative stands above all the other stories but includes them. It's the mega-story. So let's walk this, these three things out from our text. First, we have a story. Some have happy endings, some have sad endings. Ours today had a happy ending. Saul is su succeeding as king. He formed a standing army, and they were victorious. Next, we have the narrative. That's the bigger story going on. It, it encompasses a longer period, and it's this. For the past 400 years, Israel had been governed by judges. Now it's changing. They will now be governed by a king. Samuel and all the other judges give their farewell speech. You wanted a king? You got a king. You shouldn't have asked for a king, but you did. Now you got one. The narrative block goes from the book of Judges all the way to this text in 1 Samuel. The, that's the bigger narrative. And then we have the meta-narrative. All of God's little stories form one big meta-narrative. How does this little story we walked through today fit into God's big meta-narrative? God just gave his people a major victory over the snake. They all came out with their right eyes. Now we must tie God's new victory to his ancient faithfulness. All right, let's, let's look at it this way. What do we have in our text? God coming through for his people in a battle against Nahash. Remember, Nahash means the snake. But this isn't the only battle in the Bible against a snake. Our text wasn't the only time that a snake brought weeping to God's people. God's faithfulness in delivering his people from this snake takes us back to the garden when he promised to deliver us from the ultimate snake. I'm going to read Genesis 3 to you. Just portions. I'll substitute one word. 
Instead of saying the English translation of that word, I'm just going to read to you the Hebrew word. And see if the Hebrew word rings a bell to you from our story. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now, Nahash was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to Nahash, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But Nahash said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now, we know the rest of the story of Genesis 3. She ate, Adam ate. They plunged all of humanity into sin. Why? Because of the Nahash, the snake. Because of that snake, we were born sinners. Because of that snake, he let out a brood of serpents that you find all throughout the Bible. Your Ammonite Nahashes, your Philistine Goliaths. Even all throughout history, he gave birth to your Stalin snakes. Because of that snake, God's people rejected God as their king. And they wanted an earthly king. Because of that snake, sin looks attractive to you. And whispers empty promises. Because of that snake, you hate to have your sin called out on the carpet. Because of that snake, you question if God is, is, is even real. And if he is, does he love me? Because of that snake, you weep. All God's people weep. See, there are some snakes that God will empower you to defeat. But there is one snake that is beyond your power to defeat. King Saul is not enough to save you from this one. The ultimate Nahash. Satan. The final snake. The snake behind all the snakes. He wreaks havoc throughout the Bible and throughout history. But we know his end. Genesis 3.14 The Lord God said to the serpent, the snake, Hebrew word Nahash, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And then God says this to the snake. He, that's a future king, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. God promises a coming king who will defeat Satan and do more than carve out his right eye. He will crush his head. Saul is a snake crusher, but he's not the snake crusher. That title belongs to another. We sit on the edge of our seat. What happens next? What happens next? How will it end? How will it end? Revelation 20, and he sees that ancient serpent who is the devil, Satan, and bound him and threw him into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophets were and he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's how Jesus will crush the snake and deliver the final head blow. But, but Kyle, but Kyle, the snakes work. Look at the damage he's caused on humanity, the wreckage. What will be done about that? To undo the work of the slithering snake, Jesus came to earth as a spotless lamb. He lived without sin and on the cross he took sin upon himself 
to rescue us from the effects of Satan's work. He purchased salvation for us that we might never have the reign of God's wrath fall on us. Why? Because it thundered on Jesus at Calvary. When I see God's story in our text and how it fits into the meta narrative, I can't help but comment. He knows. He knows how to weave a story, which isn't surprising because he's the storyteller. Let's stand and pray together. Father, what a story you have given us. A true story, an accurate story, a historical story. But what a spiritual story. How you have revealed yourself. I see in this, Lord, your great kindness toward your people. Your undeserving people. And we praise you for that. Now as we sing, would you clothe our words, clothe our singing in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We love you because you first loved us. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.